This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in. We're continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes, a very popular segment of Ecclesiastes, which has been turned into songs, and that's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where there is a time for everything, Solomon says, for everything there is a season, for everything under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up, a time to kill, and a time to heal, and so on and so forth. I'm sure you're familiar with those with those words, and Solomon wants to bring our attention to the march of time. He's already shown how little our individual lives affect the cycle of things, and that we eventually pass from this life and all things continue just as they were. He says that in chapter 1 and verse 9, that which has been is that which will be and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. You know, he's making this general point continually that history repeats itself. History is cyclical, not linear. And a large reason for that, if not the reason, is because human nature doesn't change. We are who we are and our brevity of life will never change. And so I believe that is one of the points that he wants to drive home here in Ecclesiastes 3 again, um, but in a more poetic way, in a more lengthier kind of uh, way in verses 2 through 8. We won't go through the whole poem there. I'll leave that to you. But like I said, it's been turned into many songs, but he's making the same point that people live, they experience all the seasons of life, they work, they die, and time marches on. So what's the point of all this? What's the point of all this? Verse 9, he asks the question, What profit does the worker have in all his toil? And like he will do throughout the book, he's pushing us to understand that life only makes sense in light of eternity. That whatever you do here and now, however long you live, whatever your vocation, it, whatever you suffer, it, it, the only thing that really gives it any meaning in the end is eternity, and that's God. In verse 11, he'll go on to say that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So every person has the God-given capacity to conceive of eternity. And I would argue, and I think Solomon is arguing too, that we find ourselves longing for it. We may not understand that's even that's what we're longing for, but we, we do desire it. We can't see it with our own eyes. We can still know of its existence. And that's true of so many things, not just spiritual matters, but it is certainly true, I think, of eternity, and it's certainly true of, of God, who is eternal. This is something the Bible also brings to our attention, that the invisible attributes of God are manifested through what is visible, that what he has created. And in fact, Paul will say that very thing in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, that we can understand some aspects of the character of God just by observing the universe, his power, his eternal nature. And to our point here in Ecclesiastes, by contrast, our bodies are going to succumb to time. They're going to wear out. They're going to die. But our spirit, our spirit is eternal. And Solomon 
will say in Ecclesiastes 12 that the dust returns to the ground that it came from, but the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And so even though this may sound bleak, you know, I, I don't think Ecclesiastes is a bleak book. It's That's relative, and, you know, I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it throughout the series that we tend to... Th- Ecclesiastes has a reputation for being bleak or sad or morbid even, but that's all relative, and I think that's a matter of perspective because the general tenor of it, even though Paul is, excuse me, even though Solomon is speaking so much about death and the brevity of life and the toil of life, uh, it ultimately gives us hope, just like the rest of Scripture, because it reminds us that there is something beyond death that we do live on, and we need to be prepared for, for that part of our existence, the eternal part of our existence, whatever we do here and now, whatever trivial things we're involved in here on this earth, um, and regardless of the fairness of our lives or the tragedies of our lives, eternity is going to come to us all eventually. We're going to find ourselves there. And so Solomon is saying, be be ready for that. And even though, you know, Ecclesiastes has this reputation for being uh, bleak, you know, you won't find, you know, as, as dark as some of the things that Solomon's going to describe as, as as they are, he still will say that you can enjoy life. And so none of this is to say that, you know, this life is just always going to be terrible and you can't enjoy it. It's quite the opposite. There's, there is much to be enjoyed. And Solomon is very open about that. But, you know, we saw in chapters one and two that he, he experienced that to the fullest, especially in, in chapter two and verse, verses 10 through 17. Um, when he said, you know, he's talking about how he denied himself nothing, whatever his eyes saw, he went after it. He just, he just drank it up, you know, whatever pleasure, joy, work, uh, wisdom, activity, projects he could find, he just drank, drank it all up. And then he found in the end that he was dissatisfied with those things in and of themselves. As much as he accomplished, as much wealth as he had, as you know, you, you name it, he was ultimately dissatisfied with the physical trappings and earnings of of this life. And so this is the reason for this t- so much talk about death and also kind of in, in wrapping the whole discussion in a, a view or an anticipation of, of eternity. And so what Solomon is doing here is he's, he's saying that those things aren't evil, they, they can be enjoyed, but we can't fall for the delusion that pleasure in this life, that joy in this life, and productivity, you know, all good things, work and and careers and money, we can't fall for the delusions, delusion that those things are ends in and of themselves, that yes, they are gifts from God, but they can only truly be enjoyed and experienced in a meaningful way when we're dedicated to serving God, when we're actually doing those things in preparation for eternity. Right, he'll say, in fact, if you look at verses 12 and 13 in chapter 3, he says, I know there is nothing better for a man than to rejoice, to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. So again, even work itself and, and the satisfaction one gains from honest labor is a blessing from God. 
And God has designed us to be productive. He's designed us to be creative and to reflect just as He is. We, we're made in His image. We can become in our intellectual, emotional, physical, and any, any aspects of those nature can be twisted, including the spiritual, which I didn't mention. That's, that's another component. When we just sit idly by and we dream the days away or we're perverting work and it's, we're not keeping in its proper place and perspective, we, we become dissatisfied in the way that Solomon describes at the beginning of the book. Right, the, the only perfect man to ever live, it says of him, of Jesus in Luke 2, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And I'm persuaded he did that all of his life. Uh, and we should follow that that example. Begin with the with just as he did with the view, ultimate view, that it is being pleasing and acceptable to God. And that we that we're striving for, and, and all the wisdom that we gain, and all the favor that we that we gain, and all the work that we do. And Solomon <clears throat> wants us to understand that. There is a distinction between man's work and God's work, and that will help us uh, keep the proper perspective of, of our own lives and careers here. And he says in verse 14 that, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that man should fear him. So unlike the work... We do here and now, whatever that may be, God's plans and purposes, His work, it abides forever. And to the end that we should see that and revere Him, have greater respect and honor for Him. And I think that's true of His, you know, the handiwork that's seen in the cosmos as, as the Psalms describe, that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. You know, for as long as men live on the face of this, this earth, that there will be that testimony from God. So long as the universe endures and the earth endures, we will have that that witness speaking back to us from, from the cosmos that there is an almighty, powerful, unimaginably creative and loving God behind it that is eternal and, and wants to have fellowship with with people who's he's given us a purpose and so i think what solomon says here that in that sentence to remember forever doesn't always literally mean eternity in scripture sometimes it can just mean a really long time but i think also what solomon says is equally true of god's work abiding forever <clears throat> not just in that poetic sense and and as it relates to the cosmos but also for God's spiritual designs, not just his material and physical ones, but I think it's equally true of the spiritual designs. That is his ultimate plan for our redemption to to save you and me from our sins. And when we look at that plan as it unfolds in the scripture from, you know, the first few pages and the promise made to Adam and Eve that the serpent would strike a man's heel, but the, the man would crush the serpent's head ultimately, and then all the nations of the earth would be 
blessed through Abraham's seed, a, a, a you know singular seed, a specific individual who would come from his line and family and from specifically the line of David. And how all that unfolds and how the prophets anticipated this and spoke in such great detail of who Jesus would be and when he would come and what he would accomplish. When you see how that that unfolds and how that never changed in all of man's history for millennia, that should that should stir in us a great reverence and love for for God. When we think about his his purpose and his plan never changed for us. And it's just a massive in in scope. And we can't even fully get our heads around it. I mean, we can see it unfolding in the specific history of one particular people, but all the world was involved in bringing about Jesus into into the world, and God was conducting history for ultimate our ultimate good to bring about our salvation. And it's beautiful to think about, and you and the, and that kind of vision and that kind of wisdom. That he has, that's infinite. You know, it's just beyond our grasp. But you know, just the the slightest understanding of it, as we see it in Scripture, should instill in us, you know, faith and love and reverence for God, because of His willingness to do this. Is His work remains forever. A couple of passages, I think, that speak to this point. Or when the psalmist says in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, If you, O Lord, kept track of iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. That That's what he desired all along, was to purge us from all the guilt and the evil and the trouble and the terrible things that we get ourselves into. And the prophets also marveled at God's plan. First Corinthians two nine. That's a verse that's often applied to um, heaven. And while I think it's, I believe it's true what Saul, what Paul says here. I think what he says is true about heaven. It could be applied to that. It's actually when you go back and you read the context of First Corinthians two, it's actually talking about the gospel. It's talking about the plan that he had in sending his son to die for sins. And this is what it says, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. Right, now this was true up until the time God revealed it through his son and chosen apostles, and it's true now. The New Testament will speak of Christ and the gospel as a, a mystery sometimes. And a lot of religious folks kind of throw that around as almost like as, as bait. It seems like to me, I'm not really sure but why they, why they use it in this way. But, you know, they'll say, this is a, you know, this is a mystery or the mystery of the Eucharist or the mystery of this or the mystery of that. And then it's almost like they're trying to, I don't know, plant a seed of curiosity. I, I have no idea, but the point is this is not how the new Testament uses that word. Um, it, the way that Paul, let me give you an example. It says, we speak of the mysterious and hidden wisdom of God, which he destined for our glory before time began. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So you have this acknowledgement of the, just the, the unimaginable depth of God's knowledge and wisdom, 
But also you have statements like this in Colossians one twenty six, where Paul says that he became a servant by the commission of God to fully proclaim the word. And then he says this, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generation, but generations, but now, but now it's revealed to his saints. And so I, I think that's very different from how, again, that idea of, of mystery is used in the modern religious world. Because uh, Paul is saying when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God's plan for man's salvation and sending his son, <clears throat> yes, there were some mysterious things about it um, from ages past and in history. People were trying to understand it. And, you know, Peter will say the prophets were... Uh, uh, looking into these things and trying to understand to the best of their ability when Christ would come. But the best that they could do was just understand that, you know, it was, he, he would come later. He wouldn't come in their time. But the point is, is that Paul says the mystery has, has now been revealed. You know, so all, all of the, the questions that the Jewish people would have had were Gentiles who converted to Judaism, who, who knew those scriptures and, and knew the Messiah was coming. Um, those those questions have been answered. And yes, there are some things that have not been revealed um, as the Scripture teaches us. The hidden things belong to God. The revealed things belong to man. And Paul will say there is such things as foolish and ignorant questions that really we don't have any business asking because they're not conducive nor, you know, cogent. Um, they're not relevant to what we need to know to serve him. So it's, you know, again, I think this idea of the mystery, it's not, Paul never used it as kind of a, you know, a selling point or any kind of bait. But at any rate, we, you know, all we can do is fold our hands with Solomon and say, you know, there's nothing better for me to do than to rejoice and do good in my lifetime. God's plan has always been his plan. It's never going to change his plan of salvation for for me and for all men has been laid bare. Maybe it was it was once a mystery, shrouded in mystery at one time, but now it's 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 here before us. And Solomon, the time in which he lived, you know, he didn't get to see that. Uh, but we can, we can know the know the full mystery of of Christ. Why why the law was given to begin with? Why? what God meant when he said to Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. And we can see all that history unfold on the pages of scripture and how God was working in it. And that should, that should humble us. Right. Because, you know, and it's not that just, it's not that those people were just pawns and that they had no free will in the matter. No, God knew what they would do and what they would choose and yet he was able to use that to bring about his his work his his plan and and Solomon will repackage this point i think many times in in the book that that should lead us to the conclusion which is his ultimate conclusion that we should fear god and keep his commandments this is the whole duty of man you can't change god you can't change his ultimate purpose, he is who he is, his word is his word, his truth has been handed down, it will never change, his son has all authority, he's decided what he would do before any of us ever existed. 
And so the choice that you have is to submit to him or remain separated from him. When he's worked throughout history to bring you into fellowship with him, when he sacrificed his son to restore you to the purpose for which you originally were created, where you will find your greatest joy, where you will find your greatest peace. To have fellowship with Him, revere Him, worship Him, and keep His commandments. You know, even though on a cosmic scale, our lives are just a vapor, and they're incredibly brief, and they're rapidly fading away, we're just a blip on a vast, vast radar. But our actions have eternal consequences. And I think this is what Solomon would have us understand. Time marches on. There's a time for everything. You will experience all the seasons of life. But eternity approaches. And God has a plan to save you in it. That he's revealed here and now. And it's not going to change. So what are you going to do about it? Solomon, you know, I wonder if he didn't have Moses' words in mind. If you look in verse 15, he says, as he's reminding us again of, of the eternal perspective we should have, he says in verse 15, God will call the past into account. So rejoice and, you know, verse 14, rejoice and do good and you know, and there's good things to enjoy about life, but, you know, God will call the past to account. So, again, that's where our focus should be on him. How can I be pleasing to him? You know, Moses said something similar. I don't know if Solomon had these words in mind, but Moses wrote in Psalm 90, All our days decline in your, in your fury. We finish our years with a sigh. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we're strong, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For they quickly pass, and we fly away. So Moses wrote about the same thing. We fly away we, to, to face judgment. And we receive an eternal destiny or an eternal sentence, if you want to call it that. And so my departure may come any day. Your departure may come any day. For most people, it will be unexpected. It will be unceremonious, probably even embarrassing. But if you have been loyal to Christ, then no matter how abrupt or cringeworthy your death may be, you stand to gain everything in eternity. There's a time for everything, and the time to obey Jesus is now. Paul said, Behold, now is the time of favor. Now is the day of salvation. So have you submitted to him on his terms? He makes them very plain in many different places in the New Testament. One such place is Mark 16, 16, where he says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And the men that he chose as apostles preached the same message in places like Acts 2 and verse 38. Amongst thousands of people who wanted to know how they could be right with God, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he makes his terms plain. There's a couple of examples, and I encourage you to look further to find more so you can know and understand how to be right with God and how to be ready for eternity. I appreciate you tuning in today, and I look forward to studying with you again.